Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to Ambulatory Healthcare Today, our podcast hosted by the NextGen Advisors. With me today to discuss the process of discovery, failure, and innovation regarding COVID vaccines and treatments is my colleague, Dr. Marty Lustig. Welcome, Marty. Thanks, Graham. It's great to be here. Marty, you wrote a blog, which we published in the past week, examining the enormous ramp-up of bench research and clinical trials since the pandemic began in earnest back in early 2020. Uh, You wrote in that article, since those first days of the pandemic, the scientific and medical community have learned a lot and made important discoveries that will likely influence the delivery of healthcare services for decades to come. In some respects, the constant media focus on promising results and disappointing failures has obscured the power and impact of the scientific method. So to start, Marty, um, could you give an example of some early theories that did not work out and maybe how our understanding has evolved in this area? Sure. Um, One would be uh, that got a lot of publicity was that chloroquine and hydrochloroquine uh, drugs originally developed to treat malaria, which were also found to be effective in certain autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, had been known to have some antiviral properties as well as anti-inflammatory properties. And it was thought, because we knew that they were at least safe and effective to use for other things, that we it was a reasonably safe thing to try them as a treatment for the pandemic. And unfortunately, though they were used very broadly early on, there now have been lots of studies that pretty conclusively prove that they neither have antiviral effect and to the effect that they have an anti-inflammatory effect, the inflammation that is part of the natural history of SARS-CoV-2 is so complex that the impact of chloroquine was uh, not significant in terms of affecting the disease. In fact, even what has become somewhat standard therapy, which is the use of corticosteroids, which are very strong anti-inflammatories. We've learned that given at certain points in the illness can actually make the illness worse, at other points they can be life-saving. So you're learning not just what works, but when and how to give it Mm -hmm. uh, is a big part of what we've seen happen here. Yeah, it's an important distinction. I think what comes to mind is when thinking back to the beginning of the pandemic, really how little we knew about not only coronavirus and its life cycle as it was presenting as SARS-CoV-2, but also the disease that resulted from the virus and the life cycle of the disease. So maybe talk a little bit about what the life cycle looks like just for the virus itself in terms of how it forms, how it gets into humans and, and what it does. Sure. The one thing I'd say about this, though, is that we were fortunate in the re, with regards to that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was essentially the same virus that caused the original SARS outbreak, you know, a couple of decades earlier. So we did actually know a fair amount about the life cycle of that virus ahead of time, so that even at the beginning of the pandemic knowing that there are these four stages where first the virus has to attach to the outside of a host cell, then uh, they have to get inside the cell and express their what's called replicase protein. 
to get ready for the third phase, which is to replicate uh, and transcribe their uh, genome. And then finally, they make they take these what some are sometimes called viral infants, uh, go out and use the mechanisms and structures within the host cell to actually create mature viral particles. And at each of those four phases, uh, because that was understood early on, the scientists actually already had some theories about what types of interventions might work. So go there a little bit further then. Uh, what, how, how did that understanding of the life cycle of the coronavirus inform what areas of research were prioritized? So some of it was because of what was already known. So either they looked at those four phases, and one example would be that the standard treatments for HIV today were developed in, in the, what are called protease inhibitors, which are one of the foundations of treatment for HIV, could interrupt that second phase in the coronavirus life cycle. So that was an obvious place to try. Unfortunately, the HIV regimens by themselves, the way they've been used in HIV, didn't prove to work, but more to come on that because they did uh, create important learnings for us. I think the other important thing to understand is that early on, not only did they look at the life cycle of the virus, but they also looked at the natural immunity of humans as the host with the question of what can we do to enhance the immunity. And of course, vaccines are the foundation of how uh, we have over the last several hundred years learned how to enhance specific immunity against a virus with a vaccine. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was interesting in, in your article was the, the value in failure. And you noted that there is there is indeed value. And I wonder if you could perhaps share an instance of failure that you think uh, eventually led to success here. Yeah, so I would go back to the HIV drugs. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, one of the common drugs in HIV is called ritinavir. And it was it is a protease inhibitor, which means it is uh, normally as the as the viral proteins are transcribed, are replicated, they're in large pieces that need to be broken into the smaller proteins that actually do the work of building the new viral particles. And this prevents that cleavage of the larger proteins. Um, it was, it was, it's been found in HIV that actually, although it's a protease inhibitor, it actually does a couple of other things that enhances the effectiveness of other protease inhibitors. It, it uh, has an impact on the liver that slows down the breakdown of those, as well as um, enhancing their ability to get into the cells. And so even though the HIV drugs didn't work, Paxlovid, which is the latest drug that got approved, the Merck drug that got approved, is a new protease inhibitor that seems to be specifically effective with SARS-CoV-2, but it breaks down very quickly. So it was ineffective by itself, but by combining it with ritonavir, which they had already learned about in HIV, they now have an effective drug that can be taken in oral form uh, and prevent serious infection. So it's a great example of how, how they learned about it. 
Mm-hmm. And how they learned that, yes, even though it failed in this particular application, if you look at some of the attributes of the drug and how it functions, there may be other avenues to approach and to research in terms of having some efficacy here as, as the target. Um, there's been, you know, there was a huge volume of studies that you referenced in your article. The NIH was involved in thousands and supported and funded a number of them. Um, how how many of those have kind of continued? I think you reviewed that a little bit. How many have come to bear uh, and are continuing? And and what's the what's the failure rate that you're seeing? Well, if if you look at the number of just at the raw numbers of the number of drugs that have been studied, last time I looked, which was a little over a week ago, and the number does keep changing, there were 649 different drugs that have been studied. And we know there are only a handful of at least a handful of new drugs that have even emergency level approval. But that's the way science works. The mm-hmm. fact that we do have a handful of drugs that we, that we now know are effective uh, is quite an amazing accomplishment. The distraction of all the failures, especially when there's so much media attention, makes it hard for the general public to actually see how incredibly successful the process has been. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, that that ability to fail fast and share information sounds uh, pretty unique to what we've seen in the research around COVID-19 in a way that I don't recall exploration into either vaccines or treatments being as much of an international effort that happened so rapidly and was so much in the public domain. We saw so much of this happening, heard about it in the media because it was so unique and because there was a worldwide pandemic. It's just kind of a rare approach that I think is uh, unique to what we've seen in the last two years versus prior areas of research. Yeah, I think an interesting, uh, the you can't o- overemphasize the importance of the alignment that you mentioned. If you think about any time any of us have been in an organization where there was suddenly a crisis, there was a weather event or some other uh, kind of disaster, and we were suddenly all aligned in trying to figure out how do we survive the next week and organize ourselves to help the people in need. When you have that level of alignment, you're suddenly as an organization getting all kinds of things done in in an hour that used to take a month. And when the crisis is over, you're like, well, how come we can't just function like that all the time? Um, I think we've seen a similar pattern with medical science research in the last two years with that kind of alignment that you described. Yeah. And certainly, you know, I think from the from the government's perspective to the delivery of healthcare and healthcare provider organizations there was a similar reaction right in terms of real collaboration to access and share ppe to uh, remove barriers to licensure so that providers could move to telehealth and other platforms and be able to continue to care for patients and see patients that don't necessarily have a COVID infection, but just continue to need care. And really a lot of enablers were put in place very quickly that heretofore have been unsurmountable barriers in terms of uh, the bureaucracy on how healthcare is delivered. And a lot of those things got reconciled very quickly to your point 
and put in place because of the crisis that was recognized. We don't normally pay a lot of attention uh, to some of those scientific failures unless there has been a lot of hype about them. The media has been very interested in uh, pointing to some of the major breakthroughs, which we've had, uh, that have entailed really a deadly impact and spared millions of lives. So let's spend a moment on some of those successes that have come out of the research over the past couple of years. I guess we really haven't hit on them directly. So obviously the vaccines are, to me, the most remarkable um, in terms of the speed with which we were able to bring them to market, that the government, particularly the U.S. government and uh, other governments were willing to invest up front in both the research to uh, create the vaccines, but to move them into production uh, before we knew whether they were going to work or not, to spend mm-hmm. the money to move them into production when you might end up with a vaccine that doesn't work at all and you've produced all these millions of vaccines that can't be used. Um, but that was the only way that they could have gotten to be of use as quickly as they did. Um, and then other drugs, uh, remdesivir, uh, clearly has a role and has been affected. I mentioned Paxlovid. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are a variety of monoclonal antibody treatments, all with the same basic mechanism that have proven to be effective as well. So each of those on their own are pretty dramatic uh, discoveries and uh, um, improvements in our care. But I also don't want to miss that a lot of existing therapies that early on we didn't know, I mentioned corticosteroids, even things as simple as supplemental oxygen, ventilator support, when and how to use the ventilators. If you look, mm-hmm. unfortunately, at the early history in New York City, you know we didn't know how to manage these folks in the hospital. We used traditional approaches to people who were experiencing respiratory failure, and it turned out that those traditional approaches weren't the right ones. That it took us time to learn uh, how to how and when to use a ventilator. Um, so it's not just about the new drugs, right? Really refining how care is provided. I mean, certainly I had never heard of the term proning uh, coming into you know seeing that on the news for weeks after weeks when all of a sudden that was really recognized as an appropriate way to relieve some of the pressure on patients that were having severe lung infections and being able to support them to help recover and put less uh, less pressure on their lungs right. by proning them and moving them front and forth on their back. So I'm a, I'm a pediatrician. So way back when in my training, we had a similar issue with severely premature newborns in that mm. uh, their lungs, one of the biggest problems they have is that their lungs aren't fully formed. So back then we had the primitive approaches that we used a ventilator, but we knew that the more aggressive we had to be with the ventilator, the more likely we were to damage the very organ that we were trying to support. And mm-hmm. so these babies, and if they survived, ended up with all kinds of, of respiratory problems. Um, so you know, knowing that there's the risks associated with the treatment, but how do you balance those risks against the benefit? It, you know, you learn that that's something that you learn the science with the scientific method, just like you learn about new drugs. Yeah. Um, so what do you see then as some of the current areas of uncertainty in understanding or treating COVID-19 that are most salient to you? So 
for me, one of the most interesting areas of what we don't know is with, with all of these variants, and particularly with Omicron out there now, which it seems fairly clear that it's a combination of much more contagious and significantly less lethal than earlier variants. What does that mean for our long-term immunity for those who are getting infected? And what about people who got infected with Delta and Omicron? What, mm -hmm. What's the impact on them, both in terms of their long-term risk, but also in terms of their long-term benefit? And do, does, do the current vaccines combined with an Omicron infection offer a different level of immunity and a different duration of immunity going forward? There's all kinds of stuff on, in that space that we just don't know yet. Um, and it could be really good news or it could be not so good news. We're just going to have to continue to apply the approach that we have up until now. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other areas that comes to mind for me is still kind of unresolved. And one of the things that will take a longer period of time for us to understand are the individuals who have developed long COVID um, and continue to uh, show symptoms and have various different complications from the disease well into what we would normally consider the recovery period. Um, and individuals still showing months down the road that they're pretty ill. Mm -hmm. uh, and suffering from various different uh, ailments, mm -hmm. how those will resolve the impact of reinfection by another variant of the virus on those individuals and or the protections that they receive through inoculation, um, whether those will be beneficial or not and how, how long some of those long COVID cases will in fact endure. Um, certainly an area that I know different health systems have set up long COVID clinics to yep. look at this population and track and study them. Um, that'll be a fascinating area to explore. Yeah, I just saw along those lines an interesting study from a week or two ago that showed that getting the vaccine after you're infected with COVID reduces the risk of long COVID. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So, so some some early indicators that maybe that's that's <laughs> a good path to take if you've if you're still suffering that way. Mm -hmm. um, Marty, you conclude your article by talking about uh, what you call an inspiring struggle. Uh, what do you mean by that term? So for me, what's inspiring, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, is that across the globe, we demonstrated an ability to align our resources and our efforts in a way that the world has seldom seen, or if, if ever, uh, to solve a problem that threatened humankind and that we used the best of us, our scientific method, our willingness to share information, and our ability to learn from our mistakes, uh, all tremendously positive human qualities to me. And to me, it's a celebration of what we're capable of as a species if we try to call on all our better angels. Well, that's a... Great way to put a positive light on that. And uh, certainly during what's been a very difficult time around the world. So perhaps we'll leave it there on that positive note. My thanks to Dr. Marty Lustig for your insight and thoughts today. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Ambulatory Healthcare Today. This is Graham Brown with NextGen Advisors. Have a great day.